Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. Thank you, everyone, for coming back for another round of pop star analysis with me. I'm so grateful to have you guys here in the great new tradition of Pop Pantheon. Let's kick things off by reading some of my favorite recent reviews that you guys have so graciously left on Apple Podcasts. The first comes from Ja Tade, who says, I rarely binge podcasts, but I've now done exactly that with PP. I really appreciate how it manages to be not just knowledgeable about the artists and their music, but also contextualizes them within their specific moment in time. As someone who missed the 90s and 2000s due to a very conservative upbringing, it made me aware of a lot of dynamics and musical microtrends I missed at the time. DJ Louie and guests also managed to thread the needle of both giving due and good-naturedly dragging all artists under discussion. Oh my god. I know everyone is clamoring for an F on their top-tier diva that they stand, but I often find the discussions of lower-tier niche legends even more fascinating. Me too, actually. I have to agree. Would love one-hit wonders, middling solo careers after group breakups, and Failures from across the pond. Hi, Rita. <laughs> also, Casey, Azalea, Jesse, Solange, Lana, Sky. Wow. Kim, Vanessa, Carlton, Paris. Yes, these are all good. So thank you so much for that. Next is from Birdburn, who says, I'm obsessed. I've been ranking the girls using a tier structure in my head for years. So when I found out that there was a podcast that did the same thing, I immediately felt a kinship. DJ Louis expertly blends technical knowledge, historical context, and passionate fandom to create an endlessly compelling and fun podcast. Thanks to Pop Pantheon, I finally have the vocabulary to describe why Beyonce is on a different level than Gaga and Rihanna. Wow, what a service I'm providing. <laughs> thank you so much for that. And finally, a couple last ones. Anonymous says, amazing podcast, smart, informative, entertaining. Would love episodes about George Michael. Yes, Sade. Yes, Pet Shop Boys. Yes, and Mary J. Blige. Absolutely. Can't wait for those myself. And... Finally, from Jen Sal, 1997, I love this podcast so much. I was turned on to it from Dunzo. I adore the loving takes on pop culture and the little bits of music. For the Dunzo heads out there, I am happy to say there's going to be something special for you guys coming up pretty soon. So thank you, everybody who's left reviews. Please continue to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. As I say every episode, this is the best thing you can do to help the podcast grow at this time. And I really appreciate it. I also want to say that we did just do a contest where people left reviews requesting artists and Usher one, which is an episode that we're going to fast track in the near future. But we're actually going to start a new contest. And that is I want to ask everybody to share their favorite episode on social media. If you can, go out there, pick your favorite episode, go to the Pop Pantheon Instagram. You can share the artwork. You can share it directly from Spotify. And if you do that, if you go on our social media and share the episodes from there or share them from Spotify and tag Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram or Twitter and include a sentence about why you like the episode or why your friend should listen, you will be automatically entered in a random drawing where at the end of May, we are going to pick one person out of that random drawing and we are going to allow you to pick an episode. You can pick the episode that you want us to do and we will do it, like ASAP. I feel like that's a pretty good prize considering that a lot of you hit me up all the time saying you want this and you want that. This is how you get it. Instagram or tweet your favorite episode with a link and tag Pop Pantheon Pod in some way so that we see it and you will be entered in that drawing and you could win a chance to 
have your favorite artist fast-tracked for an episode. So that's that on that. As usual, follow us on social media, Pop Pantheon Pod, and me, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Hop in the Discord. The link for that is in the show notes and on social media. And check out the Spotify playlists that are also on social media and in the show notes of this episode. So let's get into this week's episode. I'm so excited about this. Obviously, this artist is probably one of the most important figures in the current pop cultural conversation. And my guest actually spent some time with her recently. So this was a very insightful conversation in to someone I know we're all interested in and we're all talking about at the moment. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Billie Eilish. If pop at any given juncture is a reflection of a fickle, ever-churning youth culture, and youth, as many of us now painfully realize, is fleeting, then every generation has their pop star, singular to them, who represents a page-turning, whose emergence inherently affirms once again that the old pop cultural guard is out and there's a new core audience in town, complete with its own values, worldview, idiosyncrasies, anxieties, and aesthetic leanings. The boomers had the Beatles, Gen X had Mike and Madonna, millennials had Britney. For Gen Z, that artist is most certainly Billie Eilish, the most important pop figure to emerge in the last five plus years, and one who, while slightly a classicist in many ways, is the clearest iteration of a new generation of pop stardom. One where 360-degree personality-driven world building is more important than scientifically engineered hit singles, where mood trumps hooks, and where relatability rather than virtuosity is the currency, although Billie is most certainly a virtuous. If Britney was a shiny emblem of a perilously simplistic and optimistic pre-9-11 sheen, Billie, with her haunting coup, horrorcore references, baggy clothes, and insular exploration of the dark side of both the human psyche and pop music, is an icon for a generation coming of age in a frightening, uncertain, and transitional world. A group of kids not so much inclined to look up to their pop stars as they are to be seen by their pop stars. Billie sees them, and given her rise to the top of the music biz heap in the last few years, boy do they see her. You should see me in the crowd. I'm gonna run this nothing out. Watch me make them bow. One by one by one. Billie Eilish was born, and it truly pains me to say this, in 2001, and was raised, along with her older brother and eventual primary collaborator Phineas, by two bohemian musician parents in the on-the-cusp-of-gentrification Highland Park area of East Los Angeles. In what could be read as a softer, modern twist on stage parentum, both Billie and Phineas were homeschooled by their mom, so they'd be free to pursue their artistic interests. Each had a knack for music, writing and producing songs together and separately before they were even in middle school, while also pursuing the more traditional child star path of auditioning for various TV and film projects. Phineas landed some bit parts on shows like Glee, while Billy did background voice acting in films like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. It was Phineas, though, four years Billy senior, who really had his eye on music superstardom and who, after a period of pursuing his own career, saw something special in his younger sister. In 2015, Phineas asked Billy to lend her already distinctive, quiet lilt of a voice to a moody Lana Del Rey nodding toward song he had written and produced called Ocean Eyes. The two uploaded the song to SoundCloud and, organically, it caught fire, going viral with teenagers who scoured the internet and social media rather than the radio for new music, and seemingly overnight led the then 15-year-old Eilish to a record deal with Interscope Records. 
From the jump, Billie was not your average pop star, at least by the standards of the previous generations. She was not a bullion like Gaga and Katie, nor was she sex forward like Britney or Janet. She preferred big baggy hip hop streetwear to the traditional showgirl leotards of many of her predecessors. And where they seemed laser focused on putting a smile on their audience's faces, her mood was decidedly and unapologetically inward facing and glum. This immediately registered with younger pop fans, online creatures in search of a star who wasn't feeding them something to aspire to, but rather making them feel less alone. Billy and Phineas followed Ocean Eyes with a series of singles that culminated in her debut EP, 2017's Don't Smile At Me, which ditched the Lana vibe for a more distinctive horrorcore and minimalist SoundCloud rap-esque one. Songs like I Don't Wanna Be You Anymore and Bellyache cleverly, boldly, and in classic teen fashion, sometimes quite melodramatically delved into themes of love, depression, and even suicidal ideation. Unlike many teen pop acts of yore, rather than attempting to gloss over the anxious, depressive, disconnected mood permeating the first entirely online generation, this music leaned right into it. The videos too were striking. No choreo or glamour shots, but stark images of the 16-year-old with spiders crawling on her face or blood coming out of her eyes. This paired with the narrative of Billy and Phineas creating this work alone in their childhood bedrooms without the assistance of major producers and songwriters created an air of authenticity not often seen in burgeoning mainstream pop starlets. And with each passing release, the cult of Billie Eilish grew to the point where, before the radio ever got hip to her or people over the age of 18 had even heard one of her songs, it was clear that a movement was afoot. By the time she began rolling out her debut album, 2019's When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, and its attendant singles like You Should See Me in a Crown and Bury a Friend, Billy Mania had reached fever pitch. The record sold 313,000 copies in its first week and later that summer sent its fifth single, the uncharacteristically silly up-tempo track Bad Guy, to number one on the Hot 100. So you're a tough guy, like you really rough guy, just can't get enough guy, just always so puff guy. I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type, might seduce your dad type. I'm the bad guy. When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, entirely written and produced by Billy and Phineas, delved further into thornier themes related to both Billy's dark fantasy world as well as the inward and outward lives of adolescents in the internet age. Depression and suicide again on songs like Listen Before I Go and When the Party's Over, gender and sexuality on Wish You Were Gay, and even prescription drug use on Zanny. It also expanded the duo's omnivorous post-genre sonic palette, incorporating dubstep, Dr. Dre-esque G-Funk, 1950s Torch songs, and more into the cryptic oral world they'd constructed on their earlier work. The album was not only an out-the-gate commercial juggernaut, but also a critical one, which, in 2020, landed Billy a sweep of the Big Four Grammy Awards, Best New Artist and Record Song and Album of the Year, punctuating a pretty monumental arrival which landed the then 19-year-old at the vanguard of pop music's future. After her inaugural arena tour was cut short due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Billy and Phineas retreated to work on new music and, following a series of Lucy's like everything I wanted, in late 2020, Billy began to roll out her sophomore album Happier Than Ever. Inspired largely by the self-reflection engendered by quarantine and mid-century jazz singers like Julie London, singles like the acoustic guitar ballad Your Power marked a shift away from the sonic pyrotechnics of tracks like You Should See Me in a Crown and Bury a Friend, and towards a more stripped-back style that allowed Billy's voice and maturing lyrical content to reach the fore. Billy also dabbled in an image overhaul, adopting a blonde pin-up hairstyle and even posing in lingerie on 
the cover of Vogue, a controversial move for a pop star who had thus far been revered for bucking more traditional pop star displays of sexuality. Released in July 2021, Happier Than Ever was critically lauded for its refined, low-key production approach, increased vulnerability, and surprisingly relatable take on celebrity burnout. While none of the singles that preceded the album were traditional radio hits, the album debuted at number one and was nominated for seven Grammy Awards. The title track, a bizarre triptych of a pop song that begins as a gentle acoustic ballad before ultimately morphing into a full-blown eardrum-shredding rock anthem about a shitty boyfriend, became the record's unlikely signature hit and one of the biggest songs of the year. Billie Eilish has sold over 40 million digital singles and 5 million albums worldwide. She has two number one albums, five Hot 100 top 10 singles, and one number one. She's won seven Grammy Awards, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, two American Music Awards, and three Brit Awards. She is the youngest artist in Grammy history and only the third overall to win all four of the major categories in a single year. And in 2021, she was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world. Here with me on the podcast to discuss the work and career of Billie Eilish is the fantastic writer who recently spent some time with the queen of Gen Z herself, Molly Lambert. So I am here with the host of the podcast, Heidi World, the Heidi Fleiss story, and also former writer for Grantland. I remember those days very well. Molly Lambert, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you here. And we're here to talk about a pretty like important current topic in the pop landscape. And I feel particularly honored to have you on because you actually have spent time with our subject pretty recently. Yeah, up close and personal. Yeah, you wrote a really great profile of Billy for Elle that I really enjoyed. And I feel like captured some of the interesting qualities that she has as a pop figure and as like a representative of, I think, some of the more interesting facets of teen pop stars in general, which is that I feel like Billy comes across as both an utter savant that a lot of teenagers do, but also weirdly so her age at the same time. Yeah, definitely. What was your experience like hanging out with her? I mean, it was totally surreal because it was like during one of the downturns in coronavirus where we were like okay I guess we're gonna do this in person but then at the end of the interview her rep came back in and was like oh well I guess they just reissued the mask mandate so we just sort of looked at each other like (laughs) well I hope uh hope I didn't give or get coronavirus from Billie Eilish. (laughs) If you were going to contract coronavirus, I feel like that would be a kind of iconic way to do it. That would be the prestige coronavirus. (laughs) But also like she has asthma, as do I. So it was a lot of negotiating. We weren't sure if it was going to be in person. It ended up being in person. And it was also just she's so famous. She like can't go outside. Mm which seems kind of horrible. It's not because of fans. You know, she loves her fans, but she has like stalkers and stuff. So even like going out of the house has to be really coordinated for her. So I thought that was like, what a weird way to have to exist, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like your piece really captured that well. Do you feel like this level of fame is something that she aspired to or was her intention in getting into being a musician? Like, I mean, to the extent that a 14-year-old can envision anything, do you think that this was her intention or ambition? 
intention? No, not at all. I don't think it was. I think she just wanted to make music and be a musician. And I don't think she wanted to be this famous. It seems not fun to be that famous. It seems not necessarily worth it to me. I agree. But you know, there are some people like you look at someone like Beyonce and you say, okay, this person definitely aspired from the jump to be the biggest superstar on earth, you know? Well, with Beyonce, I feel like her father aspired for her to be Mm, the big star. And I personally think nobody should be in the music business underage. Yeah, agreed. Even if they're really talented, even if they're like the greatest person in the world, there's like no situation where it probably isn't bad for your mental health to be really famous. I just think it's interesting and it speaks to something about Billy as weirdly kind of the most centrist pop star that we have working in like this new generation, because I do think she deviates in a lot of ways, at least in the way that she presents herself and the way her music is from some of the formula of how teen pop stars have become famous in the past. We know we've been talking about Beyonce, you know, we can think about the Disney kids of the last generation, Selena, Demi, Miley Cyrus, think about Britney, whatever. Like they all did this very specific thing where I feel like they played a game in order to become the most famous pop star on earth whereas Billy feels like somewhat of a new paradigm in that she just sort of did her own thing and because I guess maybe of the way that internet niche fandom works these days or whatever it is the pop universe moved towards her I feel like traditionally the trajectory is you play the game and then maybe you can start doing more idiosyncratic stuff and people will follow you but most of the past generations of teen stars to me have had to neuter themselves or do things that felt like they were compressing their personalities or their musical instincts in order to become this. So I'm very interested in the fact that like her fame feels singular and modern in that way to me. Yeah, and I think she is kind of like what you were saying. It's like she didn't have to be marketed the same way because her social media is the marketing. It's like she communicates with people through social media. It's different than having to introduce an act to a bunch of teenagers. Once she sort of started catching on, then she interacts with her fans all the time. But I think that's also a double-edged sword because it is that parasocial thing where people that are her fans feel like they really know her and they're really close to her because they can talk to her on social media. But everyone I've talked to recently who's very famous on the internet has been like, I wish I could quit the internet. Including her. Yeah, including her. I mean, I think it's like she loves interacting with fans and stuff, but she had a lot of negative experiences in the past year, especially when she started dressing a little more provocatively, where people were just like, I'm your fan, and I think you are a sellout and suck now. Mm. And it clearly affected her, you know? It's like, I think the pop star is sort of this construction in the glass castle and nothing can get to them, but she really reads her own social media. And when people insult her, when her fans say horrible things to her, it definitely affects her and like... Right. It's a little bit like in some ways the social media environment allowed her to be this new paradigm of a pop star that is self-sufficient. She's not turning to established producers. She's been able to develop her own sound. She has this very inward looking music that is not necessarily what new teen pop stars have been able to do in the past. She has the veneer of not being quote unquote manufactured. She's able to kind of have this kind of glum aesthetic, this tomboyish vibe about her, not have to do brightness, not have to do all of this stuff. So that's the benefits of niche fandom and establishing this intimate relationship with fans on social media. But at the same time, it doesn't insulate her from having to deal with the negative things that all famous people have to deal with. 
online. Yeah, and I think it's like when she was changing to this era and she dyed her hair blonde and she started showing her body a little bit more. It's like there's also this thing where people feel very possessive of you mm. and feel like you owe them something. And so a lot of her fans really turned on her or just were like, you know, how dare you do this? I'm the kid who wears baggy clothes and now you've made me feel bad about myself. You know, just this really overly intimate relationship between her and the fans. I also thought it was interesting. She doesn't think of herself as a pop star. Mm. She doesn't consider herself pop. And I do think there's a tendency to just label any young woman making music as a pop star. Interesting. Because I feel like that happens with Lana Del Rey. Mm. Also, I feel like was very like, I'm not a pop star. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like an alternative rock singer. So I do think when it's like a pretty young girl, everyone's like, it's Britney. But it's not necessarily Britney. So I do think that Billy, even though she loved Justin Bieber and stuff like that as a kid, I think the music she makes is more like going towards alternative music and rock, especially with this new album and almost kind of like industrial music. So I don't know if that's just she's like changing the definition of what a pop star is. This gets into the contrast between sort of pop as a form of music or a genre of music that has traditional markers and the notion of pop being what is most popular. And so I guess maybe she has rewritten some of the rules of what a popular hit can sound like. Like if you think about even her biggest songs, they sometimes don't rely on melodic choruses. They have weird structures to them. Obviously the production is singular thanks to her collaboration with Phineas, et cetera. But she is a pop star, whether she likes it or not, by dint of just being the central focus. She's the most popular artist or one of the most popular artists on earth, period. And in some ways pop mutates to whatever that is in a given moment. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we've seen some other pop stars that are more in the dark side of pop rather than the bright, shiny, what we're talking about, you know, people like Halsey, who I do think is a pop star, but talking about some darker themes and some more personal lyrics. But I do think with this album, with the second album, that Billy made a decision to sort of do what she wanted. I do think there were people who wanted her to replicate the first album. And she just is so powerful and so famous at this point that she was able to say, I'm just going to do what I want to do, which is like make an album influenced by like Julie London, right. you know, <laughs> which is like yeah. really cool. Totally. Talking to her about music, it just seemed really clear that she grew up in like a very musical household where her parents played her a lot of older music. And so it doesn't seem like she's following trends. Mm-mm. It seems like she's setting the trends because I don't know that anybody would have been like, you should make an album inspired by Torch yeah. Singers, but it's such a good album. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I really think that this can get us into the framework of our conversation here because I do think it's less so that she's not a pop star and more so that she is kind of reinventing the way that pop stardom works. Or maybe if she's not reinventing it, she's the biggest expression of a new form of how pop stardom works because in a way, pop stardom has become about world building more than about living hit to hit. Billie Eilish can maintain a humongous pop career without necessarily needing to play the sort of, I need a consecutive slew of number one hit singles in order to be the biggest pop star on earth. And I feel like that's kind of a new paradigm. And we'll get into this now that is formulated by someone like Lana Del Rey, where it's like Lana Del Rey is completely unreliant on having hit songs in order to maintain a very wide, spread pop career and I think Billy in some ways is like the biggest expression of that so far and that could be a new paradigm yeah and I do think that is just what stardom is like now I don't think anyone can ever be as famous as 
Britney Spears right, was right. in the late 90s because totally. I just don't think we have that mono culture anymore right. where there's one supreme who's chosen and everybody knows who they mm-hmm. are. Everything is getting a little more niche and I think that's actually good personally. Agreed. I think what you were saying, it's like you build a brand. Right. You build a brand and then anything you sell under the brand is like part of the brand. And I think people are figuring out how to modernize this idea of the avatar yeah. of being a cool teenager. I think Billy's the coolest expression of this because she's very explicitly, and I think you're starting to get at this with her most recent record, saying like, I don't have interest in making mainstream, easy to consume music. I really am in this primarily to follow my artistic muse. And yes, I know she has to play the pop star game of like, I'm selling merch and I'm selling all this other stuff. But at least from a musical perspective, and we'll play this out now, she has made choices consistently along the way that show her to be a person of integrity in terms of her artistry and really I think it's cool to see how the internet can support an artist in doing that in a way that would not have been possible prior to that. All right so I'd like to rewind a little bit and zoom out for a second and talk a little bit about where that shift maybe has occurred that we were getting at earlier in the way that pop stardom operates in the pre-social post-social universe and my first question for you is you talked about Lana Del Rey a little bit but who do you see I guess as like the pop predecessors to Billy that sort of helped set the stage for someone like her to become so successful? Honestly, I feel like she has more in common with somebody like Bjork mm. than somebody like Britney, right. you know? And if you complain once more, you Because I think her thing is sort of like alternative. I'm not your traditional hot girl, but I am like a hot girl. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I'm like a sad hot girl. Mm. Yeah, and I think with her and Lana too, if they both kind of make stuff that to me feels like it comes out of like trip hop almost. That sad jazz singer, torch singer vibe. <laughs> It's like they're not cheerleaders right. the way that sometimes pop stars are. They're like the alternative kid who's like under the bleachers smoking cigarettes. Mm. I feel like we have to talk a little bit about Lord though, because I think Lord is an obvious example of a pop star who kind of like, I'm not saying that musically they're necessarily totally enmeshed, but is a pop star that came up under a similar guise where it was not necessarily intending to be a massive mainstream centrist pop star, a bedroom artist in a sense, somebody that was like making... I don't know though, because I feel like Lord also got signed really young right. and was being marketed to everybody as this alternative to Taylor Swift mm. or whatever. But every song's like gold teeth, gray goose, dripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room, we don't care. I don't know if they anticipated Lord becoming so huge. No, but I feel like this happens, which is that you can always counter market in pop. Like the thing I always think of is like Jessica and Ashley Simpson. Mm. It's like you can market Jessica Simpson as the cheerleader. And then they marketed Ashley Simpson as the girl whose sister is a cheerleader. Right. <laughs> who's like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or like Avril and Britney. Right, exactly. It's like you can always kind of 
market to like the girl who feels alienated by I'll never be Britney, mm. but like I could be Avril, right. you know? <laughs> and often it takes the form of being really hateful towards the pretty right. girl, good girl, right. of being like, I'm different, right. I'm, you know, right. damaged, right. I'm jagged but I think people get confused about Billy because she can't really be put in a box you know I guess I only bring up Lord not because of like their stories might be somewhat different when I think about the big pop stars prior to Lord I think about Gaga Katie Kesha Rihanna, Britney, like they all were operating in this very specific way where it was like meant to be as maximalist and as accessible to the most amount of people as they could possibly manage. They worked with whomever to figure out how to achieve that. And Lord, to me represented a paradigm shift, not just because she changed how the music sounded. And obviously Lord has been hugely influential in the way that pop music sounds. Minimalist, spare, down-tempo, introspective. That was like obviously a huge shifting point but also lord was like i make my music with this unknown producer i mean she did eventually maybe turn to max martin at a certain point but at least in this early phase she was like i'm not here trying to make music with max martin i'm here making this kind of introspective music that has a very strong unified aesthetic to it that is like my artistic vision and that working on a huge level i feel like was a shift away from what edm pop stars were doing in the previous generation yeah i mean i think some people are good it's a performance you know the being a showgirl like Katie obviously because I think Katie also could have gone in a more alternative direction like when she started she was making basically pop punk yeah but she's and... not she doesn't have the depth or the songwriting chops that Lord or Billy has but I just feel like when she came out like she was alternative themed yeah. and she played Warp Tour right. and she went more towards like because she had to that's what I'm saying and that's what I feel like is the difference here it's like in 2008 Katy Perry her only room to superstardom was to find Dr. Luke and Max Martin. Whereas I feel like Lord did not have to do that and Billy definitely didn't. So that represents a shifting ethos in pop stardom. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, again, like I do think Billy is a pop star, whether she wants to be exactly, or not. Yeah. It's like she is an icon and like an avatar for people yeah. that represents a lot of stuff, which is like, again, what I think is, must be so weird about being that famous. And she seemed really weirded out about it, which is that like your image represents something to people, but you're just like a person (laughs) you know yeah the never-ending conundrum of fame I guess yeah it's like it must be very alienating especially when you are trying to figure out who you are and everybody's like we like this version of you we don't like this (laughs) version of you is there ways that the sort of surprisingly successful but more alt pop stars that became big in the mid 2010s like Lana like a lord are there ways that they were interacting with their fans on social media and stuff that sort of sets the table for Billy like is there are there parallels Yeah, definitely. I think it's that same lo-fi. They start out on social media. Lana was on like MySpace posting her demos and stuff. And Lord is more of a record company product, but she was marketed as kind of like a lo-fi, like we just found her in her basement. Your points about Lord are well taken in the sense that like Lord may have been more manufactured than we might have thought, but there's certainly a shifting imperative in the social media era to make the fans feel like they're discovering something authentically or discovering something that's quote-unquote real and not manufactured. And I feel like Lord and Lana 
are in some ways like patient zero for that movement in pop stardom. Even if you look at someone like Olivia, who obviously has a huge machine behind her that has been supporting her. She comes from Disney. She comes from the biggest machine possible. But there's this imperative on pop stardom now that I think Lord and Lana have helped create. The fans need to feel as though they are gaining access to something that they're discovering that's authentic. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And it's not just musicians. Like even like you're a podcaster, you understand people feel a parasocial connection to you right. just from podcasting. When I meet people whose podcasts I love, I'm like, oh, my best friend is Yeah, here. totally. Like- <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's such a fundamental shift in the way that all celebrity and all micro-celebrity yes. works. It used to be this very us and them vibe. Like, oh my God. Like, yes. I always think about this with Michael Jackson. It's like, Michael Jackson was not accessible or attainable in any way, in the way he looked, in the way he performed, in his otherworldly talent. And that was kind yes, of the parrot or prince. These are like the paradigms of pop stardom. And yes. that is what I'm talking about. I feel like there's been a marked shift in the last five, six, seven, eight years where that is not what it's about anymore. It's not about this us and them thing. It is about this feeling of relationship and authenticity. Yeah. But I do think there's something about stardom where it's like, even when that's the case, yeah. like what you're saying is totally the case. It's like, there's still something that happens when a person gets on stage that is like makes it so you know you're not them <laughs> right it's like they're elevated and yeah some i mean way. and billy's like, got megawatt star quality i mean like you cannot take your eyes off of this person when they're performing but then it's like when you meet her like she is a totally normal person like billy is from la She's very close with her brother. I related to her in a lot of ways. I also come from a family where we listen to a lot of music and like we're very close and maybe some people are weirded out that we're so close because their families aren't like that. You know, like I'm right there with you on that. Right. Like not everybody is friends with their parents and like (laughs) people obviously have a lot of opinions about her parents letting her be in the music industry. Well, before you get into that, can you share a little bit about just some light background on who she is, where she grew up, who her parents are and like how she and Phineas started making music together? She's from LA. She grew up in Highland Park. Her parents are like creatives who came to Los Angeles. They have this bohemian artsy family where the kids make music together. You know, but more than the parents, it seemed like Phineas was the one who was very ambitious about the music stuff and was like, let's take advantage of the fact that we live in the city where this industry Mm. is to get into the industry. I think he was very savvy about using Billy as kind of the face of the project Mm. because he knew that nobody was that interested in him Mm. by himself, you know? Yes. What did he see in her, do you think, from that early age? I think he just saw that my weird goth sister (laughs) could be a big star, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So he's making music for himself and he and she are kind of making music together. Yeah. He was making beats and songs and they were like on SoundCloud. Right. And then from my understanding, also like simultaneously to his pursuit of his own music, she was like writing her own songs. And I know that even prior to her breakthrough song, she had been uploading songs that she and him were making together on SoundCloud that maybe weren't getting that much attention. But she was like into songwriting as a kid. She's 
Right, okay, so they have this like artsy fartsy family where all the kids are like musicians, essentially. Phineas is pursuing this career. Billy's also making music kind of with Phineas and they're uploading these songs on SoundCloud, et cetera, and they're not getting that much traction. And then what happens? And he had a song where he was like, oh, why don't you sing on this song? Mm. And then that song went viral on SoundCloud. That song is Ocean Eyes, right? That song is Ocean Eyes, yeah. How would you describe that song? Like, what does that song sound like? And how does that song maybe set the table for Billy's music? Or does it? It does. It's very indicative of everything else she will make, even though she didn't write it. It's this kind of beautiful, melancholy song. I've been watching you for some time can't stop staring at those ocean eyes all of her music even her more aggro music there's this kind of underlying sadness Mm, to all of it that does feel like catnip for teenagers and it feels like of a piece with euphoria and stuff like that that's about feeling good and feeling bad yeah totally 100 (laughs) percent I'm a beautiful teenager, but my life is miserable. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do think it does set the table. You're so right about that because it makes so much sense to me why teens relate to this downtrodden, maudlin, I'm so sad. I'm in my bedroom and it's almost like a personal hell in a way of my own mind or my own experience. It says something sad about the state of the world that that is the state of teenagedom. Or maybe it always has been and now the curtain has pulled back. I think it's more alien for people when the image of teenagerdom is like the Mickey right, Mouse Right, it's like sometimes club. I run, like sometimes I hide. Right, it's like everyone's so happy and wholesome and like being a teenager is so fun and exciting and it's like, it's mostly boring and depressing. So that's what her music is about. Aesthetically, does this song sound like the signature Billy hits that come later to you? And how would you describe the aesthetics of it? It sounds like a precursor. I mean, it's very SoundCloud era. So it's kind of like lo-fi, multi-track vocals. But yeah, I mean, her voice is just so specific also and the way she records it right like that kind of like cooing right up to the mic sort of thing that she does the asmr yeah She doesn't sound like anybody else, but like also what you were saying about that cooing up to the mic. She's like a crooner, basically, mm. which is like the style of jazz that was invented when they first could have mics that you could sing close right. to. So like Frank Sinatra era. In the hustle of the day, we're all inclined to miss little things that mean so much. A word, a smile, and a kiss. Before that, you just had to sing out as loud as you possibly could. Right, like... And then suddenly... <laughs> for the cheap seats. People could be mic'd, so you could get up really close to the mic. I'm getting close to the mic now. You could talk more softly and have this more intimate sound, which really lends itself to romantic ballads, mm-hmm. where you feel this person is so intense, but it's so soft, it's so close. It's, it's so interesting, too, because I think Frank is using that technique to create sexiness, Whereas Billy is using it to create a different kind of intimacy, like more of a 
inwardly focused, you're getting a window into a teenage girl's inner world that really has nothing to do about being like sexually alluring. So it's an interesting new use of that technique to a different end. Now talking about like the aesthetics of Ocean Eyes beyond that, I agree with you. Like it in many ways broadly sets the template for a lot of her music. But first of all, I do think it's kind of Lana Core. You got to admit, this song has some Lana vibes going oh, on. Oh, definitely. It's you, it's you, it's all for you. Everything I do, I'll tell you all the time. Heaven is a place on earth with you. Tell me all the things you Lana definitely repopularized, I think, in a lot of ways, that sort of cooing, crooner, close up to the mic. Lana's no belter, you know what I mean? She set that aesthetic as like a huge trend in pop. And this song to me, more so than a lot of Billy's other music, which I think draws on a lot of other fascinating influences, feels the most just kind of squarely Lana core to me. Yeah, definitely. And I do think, I know Lana was very influenced by trip hop, right. but you know, that to me is also kind of what it feels like a revival of, of people like Bjork, mm-hmm. but also, you know, bands like Portishead. And, you know, even like garbage, like Shirley Manson. Pull your heart near and see what I can find. That's sort of like the cool girl who makes music versus like the pretty popular girl who makes music. Totally, totally, totally. It's like the cheerleader versus the girl that's like hiding under the bleachers. Yeah. So Ocean Eyes just unexpectedly and genuinely organically becomes a smash on SoundCloud. Does that lead directly to her getting a record deal essentially? Well, that part's a little obscure too because it's like sort of we're going off what they said happened. I think it's like they did go a little viral, but then Phineas just knew that he could sell this to record companies by being like, look, we're internet sensations. Like, I think he was just very smart about how to market it. But I don't think it would have happened if he hadn't been like... Like, he knew how to, like, spin that into a yarn that, like, was appealing. He was just, like, already... He was on Glee and stuff. Like, he was a showbiz kid. So, like, he was trying to figure out a way into the entertainment industry for himself. And I think he saw Billy as, like, his ticket in a little bit. That's fascinating in the context of what we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation about, like, what were Billy's ambitions? here because it sounds like just like many other teen pop stars of your the ambitions were maybe of somebody else's more so than they were of her own well she was like I just wanted to make a song she was like I wasn't like trying to become a famous person I just made a song and then I made another song and then I kept (laughs) making songs (laughs) I love in the documentary also came out a couple I think maybe like a year ago where like she actually seems like she despises the process of making music or she has to be really dragged into it by him a lot of times Yeah, but I think she's gotten over that. I think it's like anything. It's like you want to do something. And then when it becomes your career, you have a different relationship to it than when you were just doing it for fun in your bedroom. It becomes like a burden of sorts can alienate you from what you liked about doing it in the first place because you're like, oh, well, now I 
have to do right that, totally you know? yeah it's like and also like <laughs> the pressure of it coming from like a corporation i can only imagine at age 14 or 15 like looking over your shoulder yeah and everyone telling you what they see for you yeah you know right. i mean i think people just really saw dollar signs when they looked at her which is not on her yeah you know, she's just talented and she is marketable yeah. but i don't think she looked at herself yeah. and was like people want to buy me because she clearly like right. didn't like herself very much well it's an interesting counter narrative to what people like to say about billy in terms of her just being this authentic person who does what she wants. She is still tied to this teen pop machine in this way. Of, is there a level of exploitation that goes on just inherently in somebody in a teenager becoming famous in this I way? I mean, yes, absolutely. I wonder if she will have Britney type, were my parents putting me in yes, a good position right. by letting me do mm -hmm. this? But I also think a lot of people, just having interviewed a lot of people who started out as kids, who were child actors, who become pro actors, yes. a lot of people are just like, nope, it's what I wanted to do and, uh, and now I'm doing it. Yeah, totally. Just I'm always just intrigued by how much people love to gravitate towards this idea of who she is as a counter to pop stars of yore that is maybe less true when you peel back the curtain a little bit. Yeah, and she's also like, she's really happy, I think. I mean, like, that was the thing I noticed in person was she like smiles and laughs right. a lot. It's just like the imagery <laughs> of her is very serious, but you know, she's kind of like a goof. Right. It's, it's one of the cutest parts of her. Of yeah. Her, it's the sort of the contrast of those two things. She wanted to be like a professional dancer originally. Right. She started out wanting to be a dancer and what happened was she hit puberty really hard and got a very womanly body like very early which again I think a lot of girls can relate to you know yes they got used to their child body and then suddenly they have this puberty body and right. it completely changes how they feel about themselves mm. but for her she was like you know oh I wasn't going to be a ballerina anymore because like now I had like big boobs right right, right and right. then she got depressed about it and then <laughs> and that and became her persona her aesthetic and her musical muse so she releases then this debut ep called don't smile at me which has a couple of other not chart topping hits but like other sort of viral hits that help establish this pretty sizable fan base prior to her breaking through into like more mainstream consciousness how does the music evolve on don't smile at me and like on singles like bellyache yeah, I mean, I think that kind of establishes the Billy that became very famous, which is the goth teenager. Right. The teenager who's a miserable goth who <laughs> is a little scary. But I also think they were trying to emulate SoundCloud rap, basically. Mm. It was like coming at the same time as Juice World. I still see your shadows in my room. Can't take back the love that I gave you. It's to the point why I love and I hate you. And I cannot change you, so I must replace you. Oh, easy. And Lil Peep. was trying to make the R&B equivalent of SoundCloud rap. 
Right. Which is also very depressed and very like pilled out mm. and very being a young person sucks actually. Yeah, John Caramonic I think referred to her at one point as like the first SoundCloud pop star or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. So the music to you sounds like in conversation aesthetically with the sounds of SoundCloud rap and also the content and lyrics of SoundCloud rap. Yeah, and that sort of like pilled out aesthetic where it's like a little bit wobbly. My boy loves his friends like I love my split ends and by that I mean he cuts them off. There's also this very sort of like horrorcore demon child like witchy energy that she brings to a yeah, lot of it. Yeah, she like, just loves horror movies right. too, I found out. Do you remember this sister duo called the Pierces? No. You'll probably remember it from an ad for the OG Gossip Girl. And it was a song called Secret. I mean, they had a whole record. I am like almost like want to text it to you. I've just always been intrigued by the connection between this band and Billy's music. They sort of have this almost like haunting demon child lilt to what they do. Just listen to this and tell me what you think. Got a secret, can you keep it? Swear this one you'll save. Better lock it in your pocket, taking this one to the grave. If I show you, then I know you won't tell what I said. Cause two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. She said when I interviewed her, I don't think this ended up in the thing, but her favorite movie is The Shining. Mm. That's kind of her aesthetic. It's like slow pan horror. Right, exactly. That's exactly what I mean. And on that note, the other thing that really came to mind for me listening to this EP, listening to the first record, all of her music really is The Gorillas. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine in a bag. I'm useless, but not for long the future. There's something about sort of like the post-genre, but still pretty hip-hop influenced, definitely shades of horror and that like discordant minor key sort of thing. Blase about life, huge persona of disaffection that I think... Phineas and Billy really draw on musically here and moving forward. I guess less so in the current day, but definitely in this establishing period. And then there's also like in Phineas's production on here, a lot of like jazzy acoustic elements like on I Don't Want to Be You Anymore. It's sort of this marriage of lilting acoustic jazz piano and then like very highly produced studio percussion. Yeah, so I do think it is bedroom music, you know, that is kind of like the garage band aesthetic of like, you can mix instruments that you just recorded with presets, you know, you don't have to go to a studio or be able to afford studio time to make stuff like that anymore. Yeah. All of her music feels very organic. Right. Even sort of the way the electronic sounds are used. It's Mm -hmm. like they're deployed very organically, which again makes me kind of relate her to Bjork, like the human inside the machine. Right. A hundred percent. That's a really good way to put it. The sad cyborg. The sad robot. The Daft Punk sad robot. What is she singing about on this record? Like on songs like Bellyache or on I Don't Want to Be You Anymore. Like what are the subject matters that Billy likes to write about? I think just being like a depressed teenager, just like... Being alienated. I love how I Don't Want to Be You Anymore is a song about looking in the mirror and not wanting to be the person that you see. That's a very clever way to 
describe a very particular teenage emotion, I think, or adult emotion. Yeah. If I love you, was a promise? Would you break it? If you're honest, tell the mirror what you know she's heard before. Is this very frank but very musically clever way of addressing self-loathing and issues like that? Why so many teens gravitate towards her? Yeah, I think a lot of people could relate to that for sure. I think a lot of girls especially, but just any teenager can relate to being like uncomfortable in their own skin, feeling like they don't relate to what they look like anymore. You know, I think everyone is very confused when they go from their child self to suddenly you're an awkward tween. Do you find her like accessible on these songs? Because sometimes on this early EP, I sometimes feel like she does get at a lot of these themes, but there's so much style and there's so much characterization, the reliance on this horrorcore things, a lot of flourishes going on in the production. It sometimes can feel a little bit like there is somewhat of a wall up between her and the audience. I find sometimes on this early music, like how do you experience that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the pilled out vibe that I was talking about where it's like you're kind of walling yourself off from your own emotions a little bit, mm. you know, but I think it expresses the alienation of you can't even feel the thing you're feeling. Right. <laughs> Interesting. You're alienated from your own bad feelings. Yes, right. And in a way, sort of her reliance on these like horror tropes or whatever it is represents a way a teenager might try to relate to their own feelings or find interesting or unique ways to relate to things they don't understand about themselves. Yeah, and kind of like using the horror imagery, which a lot of it was just stuff she made up as like a metaphor for feeling crazy and violent. Once this record comes out and it has its like attendant niche hit singles, who are Billy's fans at this point? And like, how is the record received in broader culture? And how is broader popular culture relating to her prior to the debut album coming out? This is like she starts to build a fan base online, especially and become a public figure. Right. Uh, and at this point, she's still like the little like blue haired kid. I'm trying to remember what I thought about her at this period. And I remember like thinking of her more as an entity and not totally being fully aware of her music. Thank you of her is like oh this is what the new paradigm of the most popular musical artist is for teens at this moment but like not being yeah. totally aware of her music as a 30 whatever year old at that particular moment you could just feel that this was like the new wave right it was almost like looking at something from afar and being like oh my god there's been a generational turnover here that i feel like she was representing at that moment yeah exactly a change of the guard that was the like here comes gen z yeah. millennials <laughs> millennials you're old yeah, it, was. it really was that moment here comes gen z uh-huh i just want to talk a little bit about her music videos in this period like she starts to develop this very refined and recognizable music video aesthetic like how would you describe yeah. what she does in music videos I think it's the horror aesthetic like we were talking about it's sort of this very anime influenced cartoon violence there's something called eroguro that's like a Japanese art style that's basically like eroticized violence mm. that's her aesthetic which is also like for a teenager felt very edgy because a lot of it is like naked ladies with their throats slit a sort of a <laughs> metaphor for how bad it feels to be a teenage girl. Right. Yeah. And she's like really into this sort of minimalist stark imagery. Like it's like her on a white background and then she has a spider crawling on her face or like she starts yeah, exactly. vomiting blood or like. Yeah. And she started directing the videos very early on, which also felt very, she 
is in charge or you know i don't know if she directed them all but a lot of them were just her concepts right so she started early on just being like this isn't just i'm a cog in this machine like i am the machine i am the machine and i have a very innate understanding of the way that modern pop stardom functions it's not just about me releasing music it's about me as a persona on social media and it's about me as creating a fully visual world for this music to live in billy i feel like is a real testament to the ideas i got at earlier of pop stardom as world building it's no longer this thing of like living hit to hit it's almost like artists that live hit to hit are something different like most modern pop stars are cults of personality right because it's also like they don't release music like that anymore even her earlier era even the fact that she is like an albums artist is kind of a throwback in a way 100 she's very modern but there's something very classic about her which is that she's like an albums artist Mm, yeah such a good point and that focus on the album i think just even furthers what i'm saying in a sense because she realizes that making a body of work that's going to connect to her fans is more important in some ways than having an actual like traditional hit single. Talking about that, let's move on and talk about her debut album. So in the period between Don't Smile at Me and her debut album, which is called When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? Billy is rolling out a series of songs that I think are becoming increasingly more mainstream, increasingly crossing over onto pop radio and expanding outside of her fan base. And I think that's an important ground layer because the project is expanding as Billy is becoming just a much more famous focal point that people are interested in outside of the group of fans that have discovered her early on in her career. So these songs are getting increasingly more attention. How does that album like sound aesthetically to you and how is that building and maybe we're finding some of the work that she was doing on Don't Smile at Me. It's a continuation of what she started doing with the EP and it's everything about the big Billy brand. There's also kind of like a, I want to call it like circus core, like bad guy <laughs> has this kind of like circusy yes. <laughs> feeling almost. Mm. I'm the bad guy. Duh. It was different than I expected because I had just heard some of her slower, more serious songs. Right. And then when I heard like this is the up tempo song, I was mm. like, it's like evil clowns. <laughs> like it it also goes with the vibe, you know? Bad guy is very evil clown, that's for sure. Yeah, I was like, is she I was like, is she a juggalette? Like <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, I definitely feel like they're building on what they had going on before, but I feel like they've very much refined it and they're able to take it in lots of new interesting directions. Most notably in a pacing way, I feel like a lot of her older music is very glacially moving and quiet, whereas there's definitely more of a propulsive vibe to some of yeah. these songs, some more up-tempo-ness in a song like Bury a Friend, for instance, which is one of the pre-singles that's released before the album and I think is a really interesting inflection point for Billy's music because, as I mentioned, it's not just like it's picking up the pace in a way that I found her early music doesn't, but the way that Phineas and her are able to incorporate various influences into this work, into their sonic world-building world that I've been talking about is very interesting. Bury a Friend to Me is a song that feels very indebted to Kanye's Black Skinhead, for instance. For my theme song, my leather black jeans on, my by any means on, part and I'm getting my scream on. The pain is the amount cleaning you out and my satisfactory. Today I'm thinking about the things that are deadly. The way I'm drinking you down like I want to drown, like I want to end me. Step on the glass. You know, one of the most inventive things about this album is the way that it contains her quiet persona while also slamming you over the head in ways that her earlier music didn't. Like, You Should See Me in a Crown is an example of another song that does this, and it does it interestingly by incorporating the wobbly bass of dubstep. You should see me in a crown. I'm gonna 
So I'm just very interested, by the way, that they expanded the sort of things they were bringing into the mix. Like, it all still feels of a piece with the earlier music, but it feels like the palette in which they're working feels very expansive and also more propulsive and more pummeling, in a sense. Yeah. You know, another thing that really was interesting to me, at least thematically listening to this record, is the song Zanny jumps out at me for a lot of reasons. One, because yeah. it definitely builds on this Torch Singer thing. She's doing that vibe. But I was sort of interested. I feel like in our generation, being like, say no to drugs would have been the antithesis of cool to us. I was intrigued by the notion that Gen Z's coolest pop star is out here making a song about how she's not interested in drug culture. Especially intriguing since we had just talked about how she draws on SoundCloud rap and that pilled out vibe aesthetically in her music and on this song as well. I mean, that song is seeing how it makes people behave can be, it doesn't have to be pills, but like there are substances that when you see how other people react to them, it makes you be like, that doesn't seem fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It just speaks to her iconoclastic streak, I guess, in some ways, because she is very comfortable being herself. Right. It doesn't feel posery the way that like Avril Lavigne Exactly. Like like, she never feels posery. You're like, I believe you that you don't want to do Xanax. I also don't understand doing Xanax recreationally because it's like... Like I've taken it for anxiety. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it just makes me like asleep. So it's like. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like a really interesting balance on this record, I feel, between these more maximalisty versions of Phineas and hers work together like a bad guy, like you should see me in a crown. And then on the back half of the record, there's a lot of really quiet songs that highlight her introspective writing and her ability to synthesize pretty dark topics. Like there's that song, Listen Before I Go, from the perspective of someone who's about to kill themselves, which in what I think is now kind of classic Billy and Phineas form in terms of their melding of traditionalism and futurism is kind of a classic crooned piano ballad that's punctuated by these very striking dubstep bass drops. So elegantly written by such a young songwriter, I thought. Yeah. And again, it's like, I think people also, some of those songs, they were like, this must be literal. And she was like, no. She likes playing characters, she said. She said, I think in retrospect, that a lot of this was written from the perspective of other people other than herself. Which is also like, what else do you do when you're that age? You haven't had that much life experience. You're sort of going off of movies and TV and like what you think people's lives are like. But people were really like, oh, she must have a crazy life. And it's like, I think she is homeschooled. Right. Like, I think... <laughs> this is like a fantasy world, basically. It's a fantasy world. And yeah. it's a fantasy world of somebody who is maybe homeschooled and spends a lot of time in their head. Yeah. 
building a world. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know what you made me think? There's so many dark songs on this record. I mean, we've talked about Barry Fred. We've talked about it. Listen Before I Go. And of course, all of her past songs, which are all like kind of dark. Bad Guy is the big hit and her biggest hit from this album. And it really stands out as one of her only songs that's genuinely lighthearted and silly. Yeah. You don't often get lighthearted and silly from Billy music. But also people like were clutch their pearls about that song because she said, my seduce your dad type. Yeah. People were like, oh, how dare an underage girl like suggest she She's attracted to like adult men. So you're a tough guy, like you're really rough guy. Just can't get enough guy, just always so puff guy. I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type, might seduce your dad type. I'm the bad guy. And people were all like, this must be like somebody is making her sing this. Mm. I don't think anyone makes Billie Eilish sing anything, to be honest with you. Like that's, I, I never that's get That's what that I back. mean. Everybody was like, oh, she's like positioning herself as like a Lolita. Right. I think she's just goofing. Yes. And I think to her, the joke is like that she would never seduce anyone's dad. But like in the context of the song, she can play a character who has the power to do stuff like that. And also, I think the clever use of that duh. Duh. is really funny because you're like, yeah, might seduce your dad type. And then she sort of reverts back into being like a silly pen 15 ask teenager like you know what I mean like it's, right. it's that contrast and also I think it's like she's using how scary teenagers are right but teenagers also fancy themselves to be scarier than they might actually be to or darker than they might actually be which is part of her charm which I think is also what she like is coming out of now is being like oh I'm not actually just interested in being like dark and depressed all the time right. and some people were like but that's why we like you right right <laughs> then she was like I'm still depressed don't worry I'm, yeah, just, I'm like... just depressed in a more adult way now I always find on this record when I listen to it there's this, this hilarity between this sort of like really well constructed dark introspective music on a lot of these songs and then like the opening of the album is her goofing with Phineas about taking her retainer yeah exactly my Invisalign has I have taken out my Invisalign I have taken out my Invisalign, out my Invisalign and this is the album <laughs> <laughs> This really funny dichotomy in her of like this savant and this sort of like dark person who's really in this deep, dark sort of introspective world with herself, fantasy world, and then just sort of this like dopey teenager at the same right, time. Right, which I think is also like when Britney was on the cover of Rolling Stone, Inside the Heart and Mind of a Teen Dream, she was also just a goofball yeah. who was really good right. at playing the character of the mm. coquette. And she maybe was pushed into doing like a pretty fucked up photo shoot, a very right. like like pedo bait photo shoot. Right. And I think it's interesting that Billy doesn't do any of that stuff and she still got called pedo bait, you know, like, <laughs> or was accused of like baiting pedos. And it's like, look, if she's hot, I mean, that's that's what I think she's dealing with now too, where she's just like, people are like mad at her for being hot. And right. she's like, that's on them. <laughs> like a hundred percent. How they react to seeing a teenage girl talking about sex and it makes them uncomfortable. That's like not her problem. And I think the thing that for better or worse differentiates her from the Britneys is that like Britney was always perceived as manufactured. For better or worse the perception of Billy is that she is making all of these choices, writing all of these songs, making all of this music. This is all emanating from 
her, which I think like creates a different reaction in some ways from broader culture. Yeah, and it's like her personal life becomes part of the conversation, which seemed like something she was really uncomfortable with. Right. I think that's why she also doesn't identify as a pop star because she was like, I don't want my personal life to be in the public eye. Yeah. I want to make my music. And I think she also noticed that like how much of the conversation about her was about her body and her personal life and like who she's dating and not her music. Right. And as a musician, it was just really cool to see her kind of coming into this like feminist consciousness, Mm, you know, and mm -hmm. not becoming a reactionary, being sort of like, wait, why is it my problem? You know, and she was also very aware of when I wear a corset, I'm sexualized because I have these big breasts. But if a flat chested girl wears a corset, it's perceived completely differently, even though it's like a sexual garment. They don't get the comments that she gets. But what I also thought was amazing was that she wasn't fuck them, I'm cool. You know, she was like, it sucks for them and it sucks for me. Right, totally, totally. It sucks to be seen as immature when you want people to perceive you as like a woman, but it also sucks to be perceived as a sexual woman all the time when you just want to be a person, you know? Totally. In terms of like creating this record, do you have a sense of how her and Phineas's dynamic shifted from when they started and he was sort of Svengaliing this to some degree to like how they create music on this record? I think he kind of masterminded the first album, Mm. but I think he was like, we're a band and she went along with it, but he was the one who was like, let's make music and turn our sibling jam sessions into like a career, you know? Totally. To me, they really remind me of like the Carpenters actually. Yeah. (laughs) That's so funny. Just because also I think the Carpenters have that kind of weird siblings from the suburbs who are like in their own world, in their own kind of like virgin suicides world where it's just each other, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, like, I know people are very weird about Billy and Phineas, but, like, I also have a brother who I'm very close with and who I make music with sometimes even. Right. And who's, like, one of my best friends and we joke around a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think people just aren't used to seeing that. I agree. I I, I have the same thing. Me and my sister are best, best friends. And, like, every time we interact with people, they're like, I don't understand. We lived together for 10 years. Right. It's like people are confused by sort of, like, the familiar dynamic between siblings who are like not the same gender right because they're like what is this it's not yeah <laughs> we, ha- we don't understand right. like but I feel like this is so key <laughs> to what makes Billy's whole narrative function in this sort of like uber authenticity focused pop culture environment is like people love I think ultimately as part of the narrative that this music is getting made with siblings in their childhood bedroom like that is such a huge focal point of this record and the way that it's no definitely and a her narrative overall like if Billy was making this music with Max Martin that would have a huge effect even if it was the same music would have a huge differing effect on the narrative the amount of trust she has with Phineas I think is like what made any of this possible yeah also it's like she had him on tour with her so she had somebody to make sure that there weren't like creepy adults coming at her you know she had like someone to protect her yeah through this process who maybe has a little less at stake as like a dude in the business you know yeah so obviously this record becomes the biggest album on planet earth she wins infinitum grammys it has a number of hit singles you talked earlier about how like you don't feel that that was what her intention was so she probably was bowled over i'm always struck by that moment right before she won album of the year at the grammys where she quietly mouths please don't let it be me or something (laughs) you know she clearly was became famous in a way that was almost uncomfortable or unnatural to what she might have wanted i don't think there's a way for that kind of fame to be comfortable or natural for anyone It, it would give you mental 
issues. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's no way in which that would ever feel normal. Again, that's why I'm like, was it a good idea for maybe somebody struggling with depression to right. go into this industry where you like... But I think the difference here is that I don't think the music that they were making was aimed at this level of success, whereas I do think Hit Me Baby no. One More Time was aimed at this level of success. Does that make sense? No, definitely. But I do also think Lord obviously got so burnt out. Right. I think that thing of being anointed by the music industry and having to realize on some level being like, wow, I must be so special, but also maybe this has nothing to do with me. Yeah, using me as an avatar for something. Using me as an avatar to make the music business seem like successful and- And cool and authentic and and like- And authentic and all the things. Yeah, exactly. Because there's like that song on the new Lord album about how that was the moment for her of Mm. like, you know- Yeah, when Carol King like like gave her that award. Yeah, and we're like, you're a genius. (laughs) No 15 year old is like prepared to handle that. I do think it's like not probably good for any artist to peak that early yeah. to have your most success with your first project mm, is like a curse yeah it's kind of a curse yeah. I think Lana is a very interesting example of that because she has never had the kind of chart success again that she had with Born to Die but it also seems like she doesn't want that right like that experience was also so alienating for her ultimately that even though her persona is very much like about this idea of becoming the most famous woman in the world that when she became even a little bit famous she was like like, oh, I don't want this. Like, totally, totally. And you know what? I do think that's a really relevant thing because I think Lana's choices with the back end of her career inform a lot of, I think, what Billy's choices were moving into this second era. That's what I think so too. And I think it's smart because I think what will happen is if you are a pop star, the trends right. will change. And if you are doing sort of the same thing, you know, I think people like Katy Perry when they try exactly. to experiment, it's like people are right. not here for that. Totally. Katy is the exact foil. There's like the Katy mold of pop stardom and there's kind of the Lana mold where it's like Katie was constantly thinking about her musical success from like how can I maintain and re-deliver on the same success over and over again and so people got that expectation yeah. from her and then as you said when she tried to step outside of that it was like nope we don't want this whereas like yeah. pop stars may seem crazy when after a huge success they make a huge pivot like Allure did on her most recent album or even on Melodrama to some degree or like Lana did in her career or like Billy did on some level with Happier Than Ever by going more idiosyncratic, not trying to capitalize on the success of the first record so much, but they can end up better off in the long run because they've removed themselves from the sort of hit single rat race. Yeah, because I I do think Katie's a singles artist and I think Katie is so associated with stagecraft and with the imagery. Right, like old school showgirl showmanship kind of stuff. Right, that like I don't think anybody would ever be here for like her singer songwriter no. era, even though she is a fucking singer songwriter and started as like a girl with a guitar. Totally, you know, totally, yeah. But she, but she, she established herself so in public imagination as not that. You know what I mean? The sensory overwhelming. It is a type of pop that I also like, right. which is the thing that's like it's all artifice. Totally, you know, totally. I agree. But I think that we live in an era where we can't have that level of artifice with our pop stars anymore. Even pop stars I that trade right. in artifice, even pop star like a Doja Cat, I guess would be like the closest no, think... thing we have to that. But even a little Nas X, who's like all about showmanship, right. it's big visuals, it's lots of stuff going They're on. They're still on Twitter doing jokes. They're still on Twitter doing memes. And little Nas X on his record is telling a 
lot of personal shit. It doesn't feel yeah. like these broad Max Martin songs, which again, I also love. I'm not here to diss it. It's just different to me. There's an imperative on Little Nas X to say stuff about himself, to like reveal himself. Everybody understands the idea of making the avatar of yourself now because of the internet. Right. Everyone's internet identity is like their Hannah Montana right. pop star <laughs> yeah. alter ego, where it's like the version of you that's like a little exaggerated yeah, totally. and isn't fully you, yeah. but it's like it is also you. Right. And I think all of these new pop stars, Billy, Lil Nas X, and Doja Cat, is like they all started as just kids on the internet, you know? Creatures of the internet, exactly. Yeah, yeah. they weren't built by a company. Right. They built themselves on the internet. So as we were saying, Billy has this massive success etc. She's actually about to go on a what seemed like a pretty fantastic looking world tour for the first record three days before the pandemic hit. That tour got canceled. Over the early phases of the pandemic, we got a few like Lucy singles, including Everything I Wanted, which I think actually speaks to some of the stuff that we're talking about here. It's a song about getting everything you wanted and still being kind of miserable. Yeah, exactly. I had a dream I got everything I wanted not what you think And if I'm being honest It might have been a nightmare To anyone who might care And then she sort of like starts to ramp up the rollout to her second record over the early part of this past year. It begins with something we've touched on a few times, which is this huge photo shoot she does. Well, she goes blonde, first of all. She switches her hair from this slime green sort of signature thing she's been doing for a while to this Marilyn Monroe-esque starlit pinup cut, which becomes, as we've talked about, I think ad nauseum already, a huge flashpoint of controversy. I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable with the idea of like, oh, we were so excited about having this pop star that was unsexualized and now she's yeah. betraying that. Oh, we've invested so much in the idea that you were a different kind of pop star and now you're just being like everybody else, right? Yeah, we thought you were a virgin, <laughs> but turns out you're a whore. And she was so confused by that also because, again, people were like, oh, the industry changed you. Like, they made you do this. Right. And she was like, oh, I'm just a 19-year-old girl. I think she also felt constrained by like, oh, everyone expects me to never show my right. body. But why? Right. Like, what happens if I do? Right. And then she did. And people flipped out, you know. It makes me and... think of that tour interstitial that on the canceled tour that then became a track on the record called Not My Responsibility, where she literally, like, addresses all of this pretty directly. Do my shoulders provoke you? Does my chest? Am I my stomach? My hips? The body I was born with? Is it not what you wanted? If I wear what is comfortable, I am not a woman. If I shed the layers, she was just so excited for the album to come right. out for happier than ever to come yeah. out because she was like i think when the album comes out people will stop talking about my hair right. you know and so she starts to roll this record out there's a series of singles i think most notably your power is kind of like a striking single what's the sound of your power and how does it sort of shift what we're used to from her at that point it's like an acoustic ballad, right. and it's just really fucking sad. It's about an abusive relationship that she was presumably in with an older boyfriend. Mm. Try not to abuse your power. I know you didn't choose. 
I think Your Power was just a really interesting song on so many levels to release as a lead single from this album. I pulled out a quote from your piece where she said something to you like, if you're making an album to please other people, you can lose sight of what really makes you happiest with your music. And Phineas said this actually. And Billy is the opposite of that. Her North Star is like, I love this or I don't love this. Your Power, as you said, it sort of delivers on a lot of what we've been talking about, which is like, it's actually a pretty big pivot, I feel like, from the sound and themes of all of the music that had made her so popular. It's intimate. It's, as you said, it's this kind of sad, dark story from her life. It doesn't have any of the horrorcore elements of the earlier music. It doesn't have any of the production flourishes that she had been kind of known for. It's like all these past songs were sort of defined by these inventive, minimalist production aesthetics. I found it to be such a bold choice as like a lead single from the second album of this huge superstar. Yeah, it's definitely not like what you would expect coming off of Bad Guy. And it definitely kind of established it as like, this album's going to be what I want it to be and not what people expect. And that feels by design. As you said, she wanted to make an album album and she wanted to not have to feel like she had the pressure to reinvent the success of the first one. So it was like, maybe it's not as big of a success as Bad Guy is, but perhaps that's by design. Perhaps that's a smart choice in the Lana mold of pop stardom as we were getting at earlier. Yeah, definitely. And it presented, it was like very like a transitional, single into this new era really set the tone of like here's what to expect it's going to be not the same thing but it'll be a natural progression from the last album not trying to replicate the last album or recreate the sound of the last album but doing something that naturally grows from the last album to this album what are some of the aesthetics of this record that jump out at you as shifts or changes from the last record like are there other songs that you can point to or other themes she's talking about you know she really went into happier than ever being like I'm going to make a cohesive cohesive album with a cohesive theme that's inspired by this experience she had where she was baking something and listening to Julie London and it was raining outside and she was like I want this coziness this like intimacy to be like what the album sounds like well you can cry me a river cry me a river I cried a river over you I know Julie London and these big 50s torch singers were such a huge influence on this album and you can really really hear that for instance on the first segment of Happier Than Ever the single When I'm away from you I'm happier than ever Wish I could explain it better I wish it wasn't true She really, I think, more than anything, is a jazz singer and comes from this tradition of like female torch singers like Julie London and like Eartha Kitt and people like that. People who have very specific voices and who sing standards. Yeah, I totally hear that for sure. What about like lyrically? What is she singing about here? It's more personal, I guess. It's more specifically about her experiences and taking the first person not as invented from her ideas. Things I once enjoyed Just keep me employed now Things I'm longing for Someday I'll be bored of It's so It's very personal. It's very much about what it's been like for her to become the most famous person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was crazy listening to a record from a 19-year-old about 
being exhausted by life and fame. <laughs> yeah. But again, that's why kids shouldn't work. Yeah. Cause like you will get burnt out. And if you start that early, the odds of getting burnt out and just being done are very high. You yeah. know, you know, I think it's a record that also, it still has a lot of the style that she and Phineas have, but it strips away a lot of the unnecessary parts and reveals what a great songwriter she is. And also a lot of her influences. Like she talks about Brazilian bossa nova and that I think she said to you, one of her favorite songs is a classic of that genre, the girl from Ipanema. And you can really hear that on her song, Billy Bossa Nova. I really feel like you get to appreciate her voice and her lyrics and the emotional content of these songs as they strip out some of the electronic and hip-hop oriented bells and whistles from the earlier world. I mean, just the fact that she said she'd been listening to a lot of vocal jazz, yeah. I was like, I feel like that really comes across. And Billy Bossa Nova, it's like her references are just come from all over the place. And that is kind of like the post iTunes thing of like, you can just listen to anything from any time. Yes. And it does kind of all blend together into like a continuous now. Yeah. She's a great vocal stylist. You know her voice instantly when you mm -hmm. hear it. So that goes a long way. It's like she doesn't really need the bells and whistles. Yes, exactly. Nor does she need hip-hop markers. Like, I always felt like on the EP and the first album, oh, okay, like, you can sort of hear the fluency with hip-hop, which, like, felt important at that time. We talked about the SoundCloud rap thing. I enjoy how this record is kind of devoid of that marker and that can sometimes be an awkward thing for a white pop star to be trading in. I kind of enjoy that they yeah. found a way to avoid that for the most part on this record. Yeah. You know, and the other influences that kind of jumped out at me were like, I kind of feel like she like must have a thing with Nine Inch Nails because like songs like NDA and Oxytocin feel heavily indebted to Trent Reznor. definitely felt that too. There's definitely like an industrial music feel to this album. There's also some rock guitar. Yes. That was the thing I also was like in, when I first heard Happier Than Ever, you know, when it makes the turn mm. towards the rock part and the guitars come Incredible. in, I was like, oh, she's really embracing her rock stardom. She is like fucking like Axl Rose or somebody. It goes to what you were saying earlier about how she doesn't conceive of herself as a pop star. Like, in some ways, that song delivers on the promise of that. Yeah, and just, like, the way she performs, she doesn't do choreography. She socks the stage and, like, jumps up and down. Mm -hmm. Mosh, like, kind of mosh energy. Yeah, like, she said she was inspired by, like, Odd Future, who she knows. Oh, for sure, You know, yeah. like, Tyler was a big influence on her. She was kind of inspired by rappers, the way rappers perform. So it's not a pop production. Mm -hmm. She had this big bed on stage for her first tour, but she was 
would like jump on the bed (laughs) (laughs) the bed you know which i thought was really funny funny. that's like the teen girl jumping out yeah she's a really good crowd leader and the thing when i interviewed her was she was just like oh i just can't wait to get back on tour because like that's where i'm happy is like performing for my fans do you prefer this record to the first i mean i do but maybe it's also that the first record i did feel a little bit like is this for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i think this record is absolutely i I liked the first one quite a bit but i thought this record was absolutely brilliant like i really feel like yeah me too this record makes me very excited for where billy eilish is going yeah exactly we're just at the beginning i feel like what this girl can do and like that's what it made me feel like too it is not easy to avoid i'm sure the pressures that be that were weighing down on her to like make another version of that first record she seemed very chill about it though she had gotten really burnt out i think on just everything and also just they were like working her so hard you know and she's very dutiful like britney that is the way in which she's like britney she's like you know i think if you get a young woman in this position where everybody's depending on them they feel very compelled to please everybody and this seemed like the turn where she was like wait i can't please everyone Mm. (laughs) no matter what i do this brings the conversation full circle it's like because of the way she built her fan base because of the narrative around her as like this is authentic this is who she really is the label kind of can't tell her what to do like they kind of right she kind of got so big right, they couldn't yeah, tell her what to do and like they really couldn't tell right, her what like, to do I'm, and that's really a fascinating dynamic it used to take pop stars a lot longer to reach that phase of their career Britney it took forever for her to get there I don't know if she ever fully ever got there like Janet Madonna yeah they all had to play the game for so much longer like this is the cool aspect of this is like because the whole thing is predicated on this interpersonal relationship or parasocial relationship between fans and the pop star and this feeling of authenticity this feeling that you're getting something real that you really get to know the real them the record label can't then turn around and be like actually like we need you to go in the studio with this person and we're gonna make no, this record sure. like, th- like they no, have to kind of totally. let her do whatever she wants to do and so we get better cooler music in some ways faster and just that the narrative they were selling too is exactly. like she's gonna go make it in her bedroom with exactly. her brother whenever she feels exactly. like it. right so she was really like able to make this super idiosyncratic record like I am so impressed with that confidence the whole album just feels like she realized that she had control and that she could use that Mm. control and I think that's kind of what she realized about her body too it was like actually I'm the one in control of my body it felt very like Rhythm Nation like all these pop stars do do the like now I'm sexy and in charge but with her it really did feel like she realized like wait a minute like yeah my body doesn't control me like I control it and and there's just something so special about the relationship between her and Phineas as the music makers because even a Janet all these people when they come into control they're still kind of at the whims of like who do I collaborate with who helps me make this music Billy also has the agency of being a songwriter and somebody that like generates her own material. But I also wonder if she'll ever want to collaborate with other people, you know? This was one of my next questions for you. So like, okay, so happier than ever, we're still living in the midst of this era. I feel like my impression of it is that this record has been incredibly well-received critically, but I think it has set up a different trajectory than maybe we might have thought Billy was going on. I think Billy is going to continue to move in idiosyncratic directions and I think she has the force of celebrity at this point to sort of bring the 
public along with that for a while at this point. And that's an exciting prospect. Where would you like to see her go next? And if she did collaborate with other people, who would you like to see her collaborate with? I mean, I would love to see her collaborate with Bjork. Mm. I would love always to see female artists work with more female producers. I would love to see her collaborate with Missy Mm, and other other futuristic women because (laughs) those are my favorites. It'll be really interesting to hear what Billy music sounds like outside of the context of Phineas. Yeah, I think it's inevitable that they'll have to try things. You know, he has a solo album. I I think he needs her more than she needs him, and that's obviously an interesting dynamic. That album made that very clear to me, and I'll leave it at that. This is so crazy to say, but like if she were to make the choice, I do think it'd be interesting to hear what like Billy and Max Martin would make together. Cause I do think Max Martin actually works. Yeah, for sure. He works really well with artists that have a very defined aesthetic already in this latter part of his career and also have edge. Like I find him and the weekends collaboration to be one of the most fruitful of his whole career because they really bring opposite things to the table. Like the weekend brings Max Martin like edge, darkness, an aesthetic world that's like really defined already. And Max Martin kind of brings the pop sheen to that world. And that could be an interesting dynamic with Billy as well. Yeah, for sure. I would. It would be funny if she that was the direction she went in. Was like, now I'm going to be a traditional pop star. <laughs> <laughs> it would be funny if she put on like yeah. some pink pleather pants and was like, guess what, guys. <laughs> But yeah, I, I mean, I do think also Max Martin's songs have a real sadness to a lot of them. Mm, you know, sure. Hit Me Maybe One More Time. There's a lot of melodrama for to sure. all of his biggest hits. You know, that Swedish pop sound is, sure. is a great sound. I yeah, agree. If she wanted to make an ABBA album, <laughs> she has a disco phase. I like that I don't know. I like that we can't predict it because it's like she could make a punk album. She could get into Nightcore. Who knows? I am excited to see where me she too. goes next. I was just excited to be like, oh, she's realizing that she has all the power Mm. here and that she is in charge and and she's taking charge and it's cool. Let's talk about the Pantheon here. I feel like I have a pretty clear sense of where she belongs in this. She's kind of emblematic to me of what a like tier three superstar is. Tier three B, which is superstars of right now. The requirements are that she's currently highly relevant and defining to the critical contemporary pop conversation. I would say she's definitely that. She's enjoying a sustained stream of massive hit songs and albums at the moment. I'd say that's definitely true. They're currently dominating the cultural conversation for sure if she released a single it would likely go top 10 whether it was good or not i think that's pretty true for the most part even though like maybe some of these happier than ever singles underperformed and speak to what you were saying earlier about perhaps her powers more as an album artist than as a singles artist Mm -hmm. but i think that holds true currently enjoying widespread critical success i would say definitely that could currently turn is definitely that i just think the reason that we have to say that she's in tier three in my opinion is because we're still so early in her run that unless we wanted to make an argument that her influence is just so humongous that we would just like for whatever ethereal reason poise her higher that's where she currently stands because we're still so early in her career do you agree yeah i agree (laughs) i do agree I'm sorry for this not being a particularly interesting part of the conversation. No, no, it's, I mean, I think you're right, though. I think she's already in the Pantheon, even though she's only had a couple albums. I think we all know she's sticking around, you know? 
That's what seemed really clear just from this album. It's like, it's a statement of, I'm here to stay. I'm not a flash in the pan. I'm like a musician that you're going to pay attention to, you know? I agree. And I think she's probably like the most important mainstream, whether she wants to be a pop star or not, I'm just calling her one because she is. She's the most important mainstream pop star of the moment, in my opinion. I think she is the most. Yeah, I completely agree. She is the Britney of this moment. I completely agree. I think it's just like, that's such an alienating thing to be that it's like... You know, like she had that story about how she like went out with her blonde hair before she debuted it and she could like go to the park for the first time. Yeah. There's no question it's sad for her. I'm sorry to this woman for like what she has to go through in this regard. And also I'm sorry for the fact that she probably doesn't want to be called a pop star. (laughs) She finds that maybe demeaning. No, but but she is like the most like perfect blue. (laughs) Have you seen Perfect Blue? No, what's that? It's an anime about people obsessed with a pop star. It's Mm. incredible. But it's really dark. I wonder, she must love it. The movie Black Swan is entirely a ripoff of it. Oh, interesting. But it's about like a pop star who has a stalker and it's very dark. It's very predictive of what online fandom turned out to be like. Oh, interesting. Because it's kind of about how insane people are about pop idols, you know, and how they feel they possess you if you're in the public eye. Mm. So I think Billy's really interesting because she seems like somebody who actually puts that aspect in the work, you know? For sure. Her and at like such an early phase of her career. Yeah, the aspect of how weird it is to be a public figure is like a big part of her being a public figure. Even though she's not an alienated teen anymore, now she's just an alienated woman, which is like... And isn't that relatable? Isn't that relatable? Don't we all feel like aliens? <laughs> Frankly, I actually think like, sorry, not to just go back to Happier Than Ever, but I think one of the marvels of Happier Than Ever is it often can feel kind of like, ugh, when a pop star starts singing about how hard it is to be a pop star. Like that can usually be pretty alienating. I actually found Lord's most recent record to be kind of like eh in that regard. Like, oh, I was it's kind horrible. Of like, I was like, this is just so Out irritating. of the pantheon, Lord. <laughs> I find her condescending in the way that is very alienating about this very similar topic. But Billy never comes across that way. She makes the alienation of being a pop megastar feel relatable in this weird I think way. she ties it to the alienation of being a human. A person. <laughs> yeah. I think the connection she makes between that feeling of alienation from your image and the pop star alienation from your image. That's part of what makes her a powerful avatar to me. Agreed. Because I do think every woman who's on the internet at all, every person, you know, yeah, you you can feel alienated from the version of yourself that you're putting out there online. And it can feel like a metaphor for feeling alienated from the version of yourself you put out in public, totally. you know? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> just even from your own appearance. And yeah. so I think just sort of alienation is like her main topic. 100%. And that is what makes her really compelling. That is such a good point. That's her signature word in a sense. So last question before we get out of here. What is an underrated Billie Eilish song that we could send the podcast out on? Like one of your personal faves that's like not necessarily the most obvious. I loved Billy Bossa Nova, which mm. I thought got a mixed reception. Some people really didn't like it. I don't know why. Maybe they just were like confused by Bossa Nova. But to me, I was like... <laughs> Bossa Nova makes perfect sense to me because Bossa Nova is this music that's very beautiful but sad. Mm. There's like a Portuguese word called saudade, S-A-U-D-A-D-E. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it means the feeling of nostalgia for like somewhere you can never go back to. Oh, wow. It's like the bittersweet feeling of the happiness of a memory, but also knowing that it's over. Yes. And that's the main thesis of Bossa Nova. And to Mm. me, that's also what Billy's music really reminds me of is the beautiful sadness. My favorite thing. I completely 
agree. I love that song too. All right. So let's go out on Billy Bossa Nova. Molly Lambert, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am so glad it finally happened. Me too, girl. All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Billie Eilish, a tier three superstar, although... I don't think we've heard the last from her, and I can't wait to see where Billy's career ends up placing her in this thing. But for now, the judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you to the wonderful, fabulous Molly Lambert. God, not only for her incredible insights on her music and career, but also for giving us a little bit of tea on what it was like to be with the girl herself. That was just so fascinating to me. I want to remind everybody, if you like the podcast, if you're enjoying it, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us out. And also... Pick your favorite episode, Instagram it, tweet it, tell us why you liked it in that tweet or Instagram and tag Pop Pantheon Pod, and you'll be entered in a contest to pick an artist that we fast track for an episode. Follow the podcast on Pop Pantheon Pod. Follow me at DJ L O U I E X I V. Join the Discord and check out the Spotify playlist. The links for both are in the show notes and will be on social media. And until next week, have a wonderful life. Bye, everyone. I'm sorry if it's torture though.